So why does he tell them? And why does he tell us? What does it mean that he tells us this? Well, it means that Jesus clearly cares not only about our future, but about our present, too. He cares that we find rest. He desires that we would be comforted in this life by him, by his word, by his promises. And so this morning, he tells us about heaven. It is an amazing thing what human beings can endure in life if they know what it's for. It's amazing what we can endure if we know the end of the path that he has us on. And we get a glimpse of this this morning. Five details that we will take note of this morning about heaven. This is what we're going to see. And really, these are quite precious to us because there's not just a great deal of information that we are given about heaven in terms of detail in God's word. There's a great deal of mystery that awaits us. So this passage is precious to us, isn't it? We'll see five of these details. The first we see in verses 1 and 2, we find that heaven is a home with many rooms. Verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He tells them right away here the answer to Peter's initial question that we had seen up in verse 36. He had asked him, where are you going? And he tells them the answer to that, and he tells them more than that here. The place he is going is, he says, the home, the dwelling place of his father. And in it, he says, there are many rooms. In speaking here about the home of his father, the place where the father's presence dwells in the most intense, in the most characteristic way, Jesus is describing what the Bible elsewhere calls things like paradise or heaven. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, says the Lord in Isaiah 66. But to speak of it here like this as a home is significant because it's an idea that Scripture puts into our minds at many points, which is that heaven is for us, in fact, the home that our soul longs for. We know it instinctively, even by the category of home in our minds. Our home is not the same as a house. Home is someplace very special. And it doesn't matter who we are, uh, our phase in life, when, when adults are exhausted and spent, when children are exhausted and spent, we all say the same thing. We say, I just want to go home. Home is the place that we go expecting to find our peace, to find our comfort instinctively. And yet, isn't it interesting in this life, it's, and it's one of the signs, I think, of the fallen nature of this world, that even in our own homes, even our own homes here on earth, fail to ultimately satisfy that desire. Those who don't even know the Lord, those who are still of this world, as Scripture would describe them, they find, to their great despair, 
that there is not one thing in this world that is permanent. They find, as we do, that this is a place where nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. And again and again, the Bible speaks of believers as those who have discovered that this world is not their home. It's a repeated emphasis, for example, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11 gives us what we call affectionately the hall of faith. It gives us a number of examples from the history of God's people of, faith, of faithfulness. And it finishes that description by pointing to Abraham, by describing what he did and why he did it. And we read there, Hebrews 11, 9, we read this, By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Listen to verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Why did he regard this promised land he was given into which he came and lived? Why did he even regard it as a foreign land? Why? Because he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The author of Hebrews wraps Abraham in with all the rest of those that he described in that chapter in the very same terms. Just a few verses later, he says this of Abraham and all of those he's been listing. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. He continues like this. He says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Do you hear the desire that they all sense and feel desperately that is promised for us, that is fulfilled for us as God has prepared for us a home with him? In the last chapter then of that book of Hebrews, the writer takes all of that he's been saying about Abraham and about these, and he wraps all of us into it as well, all of God's people. Hebrews 13, 14, he says of us all, for here... We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What, what are we, we who have come to know Christ, as long as we live in this world? We are a people without a home. We are exiles and strangers. And all through our lives we can sense it as we live. But Jesus speaks to us in his word of a place that will be for the family of God, a home. It is a real place. I mean, it's a place to which Jesus can go and from which he can come again. It's a place that when we get there, we will find that we have been waiting for it all our lives. There is a place to which he will take us that we will stand and know I at last am home. What does he say of this home here? He says in verse 2, 
In my Father's house are many rooms. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. There are many rooms there. What is the fear of theirs that he seems to, to know about and to be addressing? It's as if he can sense of them. They are afraid for some reason that there might not be room for them where he's going. They might not make the cut of those who get to be there with him. And I think that this actually makes a great deal of sense in light of what they've just heard about Peter and by implication about the rest of them. Maybe, maybe only an elite group of his disciples are going to be with him where he goes. And if it's true that Peter is about to deny Jesus, and in fact Matthew deliberately makes clear to us that Jesus has told them they will all fall away from him in what's coming. If this is all true, then maybe we are not as elite as we have been thinking that we are. Jesus' answer to this fear is, trust me. You believe God, believe in me, trust me. I am the one who has told you of these weaknesses, and even as I know of your weaknesses and your failures, such that I can tell you about them before they even happen, before you're even aware of them. Even as I know that, I also know that the place that I'm going to prepare has many rooms. And that's going to be the case because I know how many of what kind of people I am going to be rescuing. And I've factored that into my preparation plans as I go. And the result is going to be a house with many rooms. Now, by the way, that does not create any problems for us with places like Matthew 7, 14, where Jesus says the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. These two, the two passages are dealing with completely different ideas. Matthew's narrow gate analogy is speaking to the idea that it is only a remnant of humanity who will come to know the Lord and be saved. And that, in fact, is demonstrated even in the nation of Israel itself. Though they be as the number of the of uh, the sand on the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. This is all true. But with these many rooms that Jesus is describing, he's making a completely different point. Namely, that there is room for all of his disciples in his father's house. The reward of life at home with him and his father, the reward of his father's house is not one that the top performers, the top 10% of Christ's disciples are going to receive. He will make accommodations for all of his followers. And I think that the end of verse 2 is helpful in seeing that very point as well, if we read it rightly. There are two possibilities for how we might translate the end of verse 2. It could be, like the ESV has it there, it could be, that he's posing this as a question. Remember, the punctuation marks are not in the original manuscripts. This is the struggle in this particular verse. It could be a question where he says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? We have no record of him telling them that before this. It doesn't mean he didn't. He might not have mentioned that in the gospel narratives, and he's telling it here. That route is also chosen by the NIV. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? But it is equally possible, I mean grammatically, it's equally possible 
that this is not a question at all, but instead it's a statement. And if we, if we understand it that way, it would be written like we see in the New American Standard, the Holman Christian Bible, the Net Bible, the King James. They read it this way. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I'm going to prepare a place for you. I think that that fits Jesus' efforts here to comfort them better. He says to them, the place I am preparing is going to have many rooms. It's not going to belong to a tiny so-called elite group of my disciples who have earned a prized spot through special demonstrations of faithfulness. It's not how it's going to be. If it were, if it were like that, I would have told you. I would have told you to get busy. But no, this is a place that I am preparing, and it's a place that I am going to bring my people. And so we have the first detail that we're given here. Heaven is a home, and it's a home with many rooms. Now that leads us straight to verse 3, and in verse 3 we find details 2 and 3 and 4 that we'll notice this morning. Detail number 2 is this. We find here that heaven is a place to which we are brought. Now we have mentioned that, but that needs to be thought about here for a moment. Look at verse 3. He says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. My friends, that's a truth that is full of implications for us. What this means is that heaven is not a place that I am going to reach by my own strength, is it? I will be brought there. When I stand in the presence of God in heaven, I will look back and I will know I am there, not because I found my way there, but because God has been gracious to me. He has brought me to this place. It means furthermore, and this is a Christian conviction in our own time uh, that we as believers must be developing very self-consciously and I think urgently. This also means for us that I do not make the decision to go there. I am brought there. Do you sense the implications when it comes to things like timing? What I do in reference to my heavenly home is I wait eagerly to be brought home. That's what I do. The timing and the circumstance of my homeward journey does not belong to me. He will come and bring me to be with him where he is, when he so wills. I hope that we are paying attention to the rising arguments around us, the, the uh, writing on the wall that is not hard to see by this point, the academic arguments, by now even the moral arguments, are quickly shifting to support an end-of-life approach that justifies euthanasia. This is going to be a significant battle of our time. But for the Christian, there is no battle there at all. We wait for Him to bring us. The, um, the amount of effort given to keeping oneself alive, that is one thing. And there is wrestling as we have such technolo technological ability 
to extend our lives. There may be some wrestling ethically that we do in that sphere, but the deliberate ending of life, that is quite another thing. And it's a simple thing for us who are waiting for Christ to come and to bring us to where he is. So we see these implications from the fact that he tells us, how am I going to arrive at my heavenly home? He is going to come and bring me to be with him where he is. There's a third detail still coming out of what we've read there in verse 3. And it's that if what he is saying is true, if heaven is a real place, and if it is a place that he brings all of those who have been given to him by the Father, if that's true, then that means that heaven is a great place of reunion for the believer. This is the destination of all of those who have called on the name of the Lord, who have put their faith in Christ. Those in the Lord who have loved us and that we have loved, those who have gone home before us, those whom we will leave behind after us. If this is true, then we will be reunited with one another in this place. How precious is that to God's people? That reunion is going to be a conscious one. We maintain our personhood, our identity, which is a truth that's demonstrated to us at several points in Scripture. Think of, for example, Jesus' transfiguration on the mountaintop. Christ finds himself in conversation at that moment with two men. You remember that? One who died a long time ago and another who never died physically but was taken away to heaven, Moses and Elijah. Both of those men at that mountaintop are aware. They are self-aware. We're told, Luke 9.30, that they are discussing something with Jesus. He's teaching them, I presume. They're discussing, it says, the impending exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish. That's the exact word that's used there. You think Moses isn't in possession of his memories as their Lord is speaking to them like this? In fact, regarding memory, remember the martyrs in Revelation 6. What are they doing as they're gathered around the throne in heaven? They are recalling their own deaths, and they're asking God to judge their murderers. You remember the Sadducees? who denied a future resurrection of the dead? You remember when they asked Jesus a mocking question at one point about the afterlife in Mark 12? Jesus says to them there, he says, have you not read in the book of Moses? This is fascinating, the line of argument that Jesus gives them here. Have you not read in the book of Moses how God spoke saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus says this, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What's his point about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? God didn't used to be the God of Abraham. He is the God of Abraham. There is now a man called Abraham who has this God as his God. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham lives. His body lies in the grave Still, yes, but there's a person named Abraham who has gone right on existing. And when we die and our Lord takes us to be with him where he is, we will join our father Abraham and we'll join the great reunion of God's people. 
This is a precious promise to us that we hold fast to. Heaven is a home with many rooms. Heaven is a place that we are brought safely. Heaven is a place of great reunion for God's people. Precious things. But my friends, the fourth detail far outpaces even the joy that we feel when we think about that brotherly reunion of the third detail. The fourth detail that we find here is that heaven is a place that will be characterized by God's very presence. Our Lord says at the end of verse 3, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. What is the most glorious aspect of what awaits us in heaven? It's this. It's that we will dwell in the very presence of our Lord. And believe me, you want to be in his presence. Psalm 21.6 says, You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Psalm 16.11, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want to be in his presence. This is what we need the most. This is what our soul longs for the most. And it's what is waiting for us in heaven. That's true in every experience of directness in his presence. This is true of us when we die and go immediately into his presence. It's true at the second coming when heaven and earth become not two realms but one. As heaven is brought to earth in fulfillment of Revelation 21, 3, where God says this, speaking of the end of these things. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's what's best about heaven. Because it's what we were made for. We were made for this fellowship with our God. We were made for life lived before his face. All of creation exists for his glory. And if we stand and live in the direct presence of that glory, my friends, that's the definition of paradise. We are literally in paradise as we stand in that relation to him. And herein lies what is so precious about this promise of our Lord in verse 3. Because if this is where things are heading, then I'm going to be all right. More than all right. All will be well. If this is what our Father has in store for us, then at every moment and in every situation that he would lead us through, God's word in Psalm 16 is a gloriously true and accurate statement. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In 1847, there was a woman named Mary Peters. She wrote the words to a beautiful song. And in recent years, 
the group called Indelible Grace has redone that song and sort of re uh, brought it into public awareness. I wanted to read the full song lyrics to you because of what they say, but there's no way I would be able to do that. Um, I think I can get the first verse out. So this is what is said in the first verse. Through the love of God our Savior, all, (coughs) all will be well. Free and changeless is his favor. All will be well. Precious is the blood that healed us. Perfect is the grace that sealed us. Strong the hand. (coughs) Strong the hand stretched out to shield us. All must be well. You can sense where that song is going to go. I would suggest that you listen to it today. We say to Psalm 16, true enough, Psalm 16, true enough. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And that joy awaits us because he awaits us. There's a fifth and final detail that we find here concerning heaven. We'll spend the rest of our time this morning here. As you might imagine, it's quite related to the others that we have seen. But it is interesting. Jesus gets to it in an interesting way in verses 4 to 7. The detail that we find is a strongly worded statement of exclusivity. The detail that we find is that heaven is a place for those who belong to Christ. There's this back and forth that starts at verse 4. You see it? Jesus says to them, you know the way to where I am going. Now, this would be the place where Peter would jump in. But Peter has lost his voice for good in this conversation after what Christ told him. And since Peter is not available presently to say something Peter-like, Thomas helpfully steps in to fill the void. Jesus says, You know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, "Uh, no, we don't. He says, we don't even know the destination. How can we know the way? He's told them that he's going to his father's house. But Thomas says, I don't know where that is. So how can I know how to get there? Now, the funny thing about this is only one of them can be right. right. Who is right? Jesus says they know the way. Thomas says, no, we don't know the way. Which one of them is right? And I hope you feel the pretty natural constraint on you in answering that question. You can only answer it one way and not get in trouble. Jesus has to be right. So what that means is Jesus knows something about them that they didn't know. It also means that they were able to know better than they understood in a number of ways. To know better than they realized. They're not yet totally tracking with what Jesus is saying here to them. I think that's by intention. Jesus is teaching them here. But the fact of the matter is, they do know the way. They know the way because they have come to know him. They came by that knowledge because it was given to them. 
by the Father. This is the point that we have seen Jesus make so many times now. He makes it multiple times in John 6. He said there, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. It's how he speaks about our, well, it's how Paul speaks in Galatians about our true knowledge of God. Galatians 4.9 says, so deliberate, you can tell in Paul. He says, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, what, what's, what's the clarification he's making there? How would you come by this knowledge? He has chosen to know you, and this is how you have come to know him. This knowledge has come to them because Christ has chosen them, John 15. Christ has called them to himself, John 10. They have been given to Christ by the Father, John 6. Because of this, they have come to know him. And so goes this back and forth. You know the way. How can we know the way? Because I am the way. And you have come to know me. If they know him, they know the way to the Father. And it's in this context that Jesus makes probably the most famous of all of his I am statements in John's gospel. He says to them in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Some at points in the past have tried to suggest that these three words might be taken as combining into a single idea, like I am the true and living way. That has never caught on. It would be convenient. You can feel how convenient that might be. But it has never caught on because grammatically there is no way to make this say that, even if we want it to. It's as if he has worded this specifically so that it wouldn't be taken that way. These are three realities that Christ names about himself that are set together, inextricably together, and yet apart from each other. I am the way and the truth and the life such that no one can come to the Father except through me. Now we should notice that ending. All of this together is answering Thomas's question. Because verse 6 ends by repeating the matter of getting to where he is going. How can we know the way to where you're going? And he ends this verse by saying, no one can come to the Father except through me. So all of this is his answer to, to their question. But it creates its own question. Why didn't Jesus just say, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. That would have been very natural. Why didn't he just say that? So the question is, what is, there must be a relationship here. What's the relationship between the truth and the life and his identity as the way, the only way to the Father? And I think one way to answer that is to, for us to notice that now that he's declaring to them his place as the unique and sole way to the Father, very explicitly, the unique way to heaven, to the presence of the Father, he's also declaring this to be the consequence of everything he has taught them about himself. I don't think it's too much to see in this singular statement a successful summary of what Jesus has come to teach us. He is the way precisely because he is the truth and the life. 
He is the truth. He himself is the embodiment of the supreme self-revelation of God. That's who he is. John 1, he is in the, in the flesh. He is the very word of God who is with God and is God. John 1, 18, he is the one, and it says the only one, who has made the Father known. John 7 and 8, he speaks only what the Father gives him to say. He is the truth. He is the life. Because divine life is in fact in him. John 1, 4, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. John 4, he is the living water that makes people never thirst again. John 6, he's the bread of life that makes people never hungry again. John 5, 26, if you really hear the voice of this Son of God, you will live. And that's because just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. These realities make the fact of him being the way, the only way to God, they make it inescapable. And hasn't he told them that before now as well? He is the only way in just these senses. You remember he was the door in John 10, 7. In John 1, 51, he was Jacob's ladder. Do you remember the ladder in the Old Testament? The point of connection between heaven and earth. He calls himself. This is him. He was the light of the world in John 8. The only way to know how to walk forward, where to walk without stumbling and perishing. And notice all of what we're seeing here. In, in, just in reflecting on literal direct places where he has taught these three things. We have quoted from John 1, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10. This is what he has come to declare about himself. And what that means for us is if we just parachute in, if that's all we do, parachute in and memorize John 14, 6, we find a profound, a deep even, uh, and somewhat mysterious statement. But if we come to John 14, 6 after studying the first 13 chapters, we're not even surprised when we read it. We see it for what it is. We see that his singular message in his entire ministry was to point men and women who are lost, who have lived their entire lives in darkness, to point them to the one and only way to safety and to rescue. This was what Jesus came to tell mankind, to declare their plight and to call them to flee to him so that they might escape the wrath of God. Which, by the way, that wrath is pervasively described as being cast out of the presence of God. It's another good reason why I say you want to be in his presence. Because to be out of his presence in any way that we could use that term of an, omn of a, of an omnipresent God, to be out of his presence is to be damned. It is to be judged. It is away from the presence of his favor. That's where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's why hell is described as the outer darkness. 
no gentleness, no mercy, no comfort, because all of those things only and ever found their source in God. Only the righteous wrath of judgment. My friends, we can sense how we need to be reminded of this regularly throughout our lives. And even for a particular purpose for us in our time, because we must be ready to let the resentment and anger of the world roll off our shoulders when it comes to the exclusivity of Jesus' claims to be, some, to be somehow an only way. When the world hears those claims and sees them as somehow mean or a display of hatred, we have to be ready for those attacks to roll off our shoulders, to know instinctively how misguided that is of a way to hear Jesus here. Just because they feel it that way does not mean it is so. And our Lord has been abundantly clear that his warning is not just true, but it is an actual display of the love of God to a dying world. If the world is as it is, and he would choose to love it. This is the only message he could bring. This is, in fact, how he has loved us. There was one way to him, and God sent him so that any who believe in him will not perish. They will live. If it is simply true that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ, then we must follow our Lord as his ambassadors in pleading for the lost to flee to Christ for life. My friends, if you belong to Christ this morning, if you have chosen him above the things of this world, if your love by the work and grace of God through his spirit, if your love has been set on him above the love of this world, Here's what you should be hearing from God's word this morning. Heaven is your sure and certain destination. You are headed home. I mean, there's coming a day in your life and experience where you will look around and realize, I am home. That day is coming for you. When you get there, you will perceive immediately that it's actually the first time in your existence that you've been home. You've never been home until now. And your arrival there is certain because Christ has promised to bring you there. There is a reunion waiting for you, which means the great undoing of a great many sufferings that we have been dealt in this life, doesn't it? And greatest of all, this day is coming in which you will see the face of your Savior. And you will behold his face side by side with your brothers and sisters who behold his face. It's good for us to remember that as we interact with each other. You are interacting with men and women <coughs> who will one day stand before the face of Christ himself. So treat them with care. 
And all of this will be accomplished because of the love and faithfulness of our Lord, our shepherd, our king, who has subdued us to himself and carries us home. It is for him that our great desire is to embody what we read, what has been written about the saints that came before us in Hebrews 11:16. This must be our great desire. He wrote of them, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, what a source of comfort and bolstering, building up, what a source of refuge your word is to your people. There are so many things that we need, so many things we need to be reminded of, we need to be told of, we need to be promised. Lord, we thank you that you have purposed in us to gather us regularly, to work together through your word, that we might behold all of the wondrous things in it that you have given for us, who you love, to protect, guide, and guard. Thank you for loving us in these ways, Father. And we thank you this morning for this particular reminder and these particular promises. Thank you, Lord, that you have not so established things so that we would have to crawl our way to you by our own strength, as all the religions of the world would teach. Lord, we know, as you have opened our eyes, not just to who you are, but to who we are, we know that if such were your plan, we would be without hope. We will forever praise and thank your Son, our Lord Jesus, who has secured for us the victory, and who will come and will bring us to be where he is. Thank you, Lord, for comforting your people this morning. We pray this in his name, in the name of our Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Let me invite you, let's stand together one more time. Let's respond to our Lord and the gift of his word with a song of thanks.